shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. Can fraud and deception ever be used for a good purpose? That was a question I had from a listener. I thought about it and I found an answer. It most definitely can be used for a good purpose. In this case, helping the Allies to win World War II. And probably one of the greatest frauds and deceptions ever pulled off in the history of warfare. afternoon. I'd like to welcome everyone once again to my White Collar Crime and Fraud podcast. As always, I'm your host, Gene Tausk. apologize for the somewhat lateness of this uh, particular episode. As usual, work has been extremely busy and seems to be my standard go back that, uh, yes, it's always work or something like that. Anyway, it's uh, Easter weekend. Hope everybody is having a good holiday weekend in the States and for those who celebrate uh, Western Easter, Orthodox Christians Easter is, of course, next week. I got an interesting question from a listener who asked me, and I never really thought about this way, is there any way instances of fraud being used for something good? And sort of, like I said, an interesting question. Fraud is by its very nature. We tend to think of it as something wrong, of course. You're using fraud. Fraud is something used to deceive people, usually to try and get their money. But it is quite possible to use the tactics of fraud to do something good. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And specifically, we're going to talk about how fraud, fraud and deception, more specifically deception, since we're talking about fraud being used for a good purpose instead of committing a crime. But we'll just use the fallback of fraud. I'll use the terms fraud and deception interchangeably in this podcast. Um, But we're going to talk about how deception was used to help safely advance and um, successfully create and execute the D-Day landings at Normandy. And uh, after the reader asked this, sorry, reader asked or the listener asked this question, it took me a while to think about it. And then being a history buff, this sort of came to me. It's not really an original idea, but I think the D-Day landings, the example of preparations for D-Day is a really good example of how fraud deception was used for a good purpose. In this case, the purpose obviously being to, for the, allies, British and Americans, to um, begin the invasion of Europe from the West and uh, end the Nazi reign and and bring it into the European theater during World War II. So that is our topic of conversation today. Fraud, deception being used for a good purpose. 
So let's talk about, of course, the D-Day landings. Um, of course, World War II, I hope, certainly hope everybody's familiar with that one. It's the bloodiest war in human history. It was um, about 80 million casualties worldwide. Uh, this is not a history podcast, so I'm not going to go into great detail considering the origins of World War II, but I've, I should certainly hope everybody knows the major players. On the one side, you had the Axis powers, Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, and Imperial Japan. Um, World War II began on September 1st, 1939, when um, Germany invaded Poland, and later the USSR, by the way, invaded Poland from the east. My Polish listeners, of course, know about that. But uh, World War One, World War Two began on September first, nineteen thirty-nine, and ended August, nineteen forty-five. Germany had surrendered in May of nineteen forty-five. Japan surrendered three months later in August of nineteen forty-five. Initially, World War Two was between um, uh, Germany, France, and Britain, and of course Germany and Italy against France and Britain. I'm talking just about the European theater. France was knocked out of the war in nineteen forty. Britain held off a Nazi invasion at the Battle of Britain. And of course, the U.S. got involved in World War II when Pearl Harbor was bombed on December 7th, 1941. And the U.S. was in two theaters of war, the Pacific Theater and the European Theater. Eventually, um, as time went on, in 1944 approached, it became clear that there had to be a landing in Europe by Allied forces, the British and the Americans, to begin to put an end to Nazi Germany. The Soviet Union had been fighting the Germans, been fighting the Nazi Germans since uh, June, since um, June of 1941, when um, these Nazis had invaded the Soviet Union. Eventually, they were stopped at the Battle of Stalingrad, and slowly the Soviet forces pushed westward um, against the Nazis, forcing them back into Europe. But another front had to be open, and so that was where the Americans and British came in to open a front against. Nazi Germany and land in Europe. So the question was how to do this landing. This eventually became the largest amphibious landing in, in the history of the world. But there was a problem for the British and the Americans. If the Germans knew they were coming, it would be much easier to defend against them. And because the Allies would be advancing basically on ships and landing on the beaches, they would be an easy target for German defenses. So the question is, was where was this invasion to take place? The Nazis, of course, were not stupid. They had their own spy networks as well, although many of them were out of commission by, the 19, by 1944. And they knew that, obviously, a landing would have to take place, and the most obvious place would be, would be France. And that would be, the first of all, the logical place, simply because the um, uh, England, or I should say United Kingdom, was very close to France, at least in terms of distance at that time. And the U.S. had been building up its forces in the United Kingdom, and it was clear that these forces would be used to invade Europe at some point. The question was where. But they knew, of course, that um, the Nazis knew that it had to be France. The countries like Norway, um, which were under Nazi occupation, were simply too far away to have a realistic chance for an invasion to occur. Um, Italy was still locked in combat. It just wouldn't work there. Spain and Port Spain and Portugal were neutral in World War II, so landings were off there. So it had to be France. The question was where. And there were two main ports that are two main areas that the um, Allies were looking at. And of course, this is well known to the Germans. 
you know, they were either going to be Calais, the port of Calais, or Normandy, the region around Normandy, France. The question was where? And this was, of course, a very important question because, once again, if the Nazis knew exactly where the um, invasion would be coming in, it would be very easy to, well, not very easy, but easier to defend. And the D Day operation, looking back on it, although it was successful, in no way was it guaranteed to be a successful operation. As a matter of fact, um, General Eisenhower, the Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces at that time, had actually written a speech as to what he would say if the D-Day invasion um, failed. So the question then was, if the landings were to occur, where were they going to occur? And could the Allies fool the Germans into thinking the, the landings would be something else, would occur someplace else? And actually there was, became part of a military operation called Operation Fortitude. And Fortitude, Operation Fortitude was one of the major elements of Operation Bodyguard which was the Allies' deception plan for the landings. The Allies had determined that the landings would occur in Normandy, in Normandy, France. And the whole idea behind Operation Fortitude, Operation Bodyguard, was to fool the Germans into thinking that the landings would occur someplace else, at Calais or some other, uh, some other point in France. So the question was how to deceive the Germans into believing these landings would occur someplace else. Now, the Allies had a really big problem, and that was, as I said, the Germans were not stupid. They knew the landings would occur in France, although France is a fairly large country by European standards. There's only so many places you could land in France and Calais and um, Normandy were the obvious choices. Uh, the Allies only had a small geographical area which they could land on, and they had the Germans knew about this, and so the Allies had to find a way to fool the Germans. And what the Allies did under Operation Bodyguard, Operation Fortitude, was to create invasion threats from the United Kingdom into various parts into Western Europe. And this was plan was split, split into two parts, North and South. Fortitude South would focus on creating confusion about the Allied Channel crossing, and Fortitude North would be staged out of Scotland and would introduce a threat into invading Norway. Although the Germans believed that Norway would not be invaded, they still could not be sure. So the idea was to create enough confusion among the Germans, among the Nazis, that they would not really be sure where the Allies would land. So the um, Operation Bodyguard, Operation Fortitude, was divided into several areas as to how to fool the Germans. And keep in mind, once again, although I use the words fraud and deception um, contemporary or at this, interchangeably in this podcast, once again, this is an example of how fraud works, how deception works. You're confusing your target. You're making your target believe one thing when you're actually executing another. And in a sense, that's all fraud really is. Fraud is where you're trying to induce your target to hand over something to you, normally money or property, by believing, making your target believe a lie. And this is the whole idea between Operation Fortitude. And one of the main deception allies, deception points that the allies used were, were double agents. Now, during World War II, the counterintelligence division of the, of the of British intelligence, MI5, MI stands for military intelligence, so MI5 military intelligence unit five, had intercepted a lot of German agents in Britain, and they were recruited as double agents. Um, and for Operation Fortitude, MI5 made particular use of three agents. The first one is Juan Poyol Garcia, 
who was a Spanish citizen who he actually volunteered to set himself up as a double agent. And he was so trusted by the Germans that he was eventually um, awarded the Iron Cross. Another um, double agent was Roman Chernyavsky, a Polish officer who ran an intelligence network for the Allies and occupied France. And he um, eventually was captured by the Germans, given a chance to work for them as a spy when he was in France. But when he got to Britain, he changed over to the um, work for the British. And finally, the third individual, and this was a man in, named Dushan Popov, who was a lawyer from the former Yugoslavia, and he was actually a spy as well. So right off the bat, the um, Allies had three very highly placed individuals who they could use as double agents to work for them. And so by using these agents, they're able to send false information to the Germans. This is always a good step, of course. Um, now, one of the things that uh, the Allies started doing was beginning in 1944, um, and specifically beginning in uh, February of 1944, 50 divisions of Allied troops would be positioned in southern England with the intention of that they would attack uh, Calais. And the idea being that they would be able to change positions as needed. But the plan, that plan was uh, very complicated because it involved moving these divisions around, which was really expensive, number one. Number two, there was only a short period of time when this invasion could occur. It's hard to believe now, but well, maybe not hard to believe, but the English Channel is a very unstable body of water. It's very, um, despite the fact that the channel, the body of water separating France and England, or France and the UK is not that very big, it's still a very choppy body of water and there were a lot of shipwrecks there. So it was only during the summer that an invasion could actually occur. So the Allies had two issues. They were limited by geography and both by weather. And one of the, um, as the, this plan was put in position, the, as this exception was put in position, this idea of moving these troops around, it was determined that it would not work. So beginning instead with the allies revised their plan again. And by the way, that's an example of a very strategic military thinking, the ability to be flexible. It's often said that the military that is too rigid will encounter a lot of problems because if you're locked into a certain strategy and that strategy is not working, it's very easy to become destroyed because you have to be flexible on the ground. Um, I think it was, if you haven't read it yet, I highly recommend reading The Art of War by Sun Tzu, who was a Chinese Taoist philosopher living in 400 BC. The, Tao, the Art of War is not very long. It's only about 50 pages and it mainly contains maxims about conducting warfare. One of those maxims, by the way, Sun Tzu says that all warfare is deception. And what he means by that is, of course, what we're talking about here. If you can deceive your enemy into thinking you're doing one thing when you're actually doing another, the battle usually will go very well for you. So the question then became, if you can't move these people around, what are you going to do? There is a maxim using Sun Tzu once again that deception relied on getting the enemy to do, some, to do something, not just think of something. And so the idea was, how do you get the Germans to believe that not only believe that the landings would occur in Calais, but actually do something about it. In this case, it would be having the Germans move their main forces to Calais to try and intercept the Allied invasion, which would not occur there. And what happened was the Allies decided to actually build a fictional corps, a fictional army corps um, around the south of England and by the U south of the UK, 
and this core would be entirely fictitious. It would be entirely made up of dummy planes. What I mean by that is planes that were made out of plywood, just models. Dummy tanks. Once again, tanks are just made out of plywood. And troops that would appear to be there, but actually were not there as well. So the idea was that German intelligence, Nazi intelligence, would think that this entire fictitious army was an actual real army. And so by thinking this was the real army, they would plan for it. And once again, the plan, the art of deception being that you're getting the enemy not only just to think you're doing something, but to react in a way because they think you're doing something. And so this is what they did. The Allies began to build this fictitious army and the have the Germans believe this fictitious army actually existed. And this is exactly what happened. And furthermore, the Allies went one step further and actually appointed a commander of this fictitious army. In this case, the commander was George Patton, General George Patton. Uh, General Patton is a very well-known figure in American military history. He's a very flamboyant figure. And the Allies decided to use him as the person who they said was leading this army. Now, the Germans had a great deal of respect for General Patton. They believed him to be a competent warrior, a competent general. And it made sense to the German high command that if anybody would be leading this invasion, it would be General Patton. So that was another step that the Allies used to determine, to fool the Germans into actually thinking that this fictitious, these fictitious army units actually existed in the south of England. So by doing this, by creating this entire fake army and having it led by an actual real individual, in this case, General Patton, the Germans were, believe, were made to believe that, yes, because of the proximity of this, fa these fake arm, this fake army unit, these fake divisions, these fake tanks, these fake landing, fake landing craft, these fake aircraft, that this is because this, these, um, this army unit existed in this area of England, the only point they could actually get to is Calais. So the entire, the entire structure of this deception was based on several different um, points that were being used, several different areas that were being used to um, create this deception. First, let's talk about, um, we had already talked about the physical deception. So this is the actual building of these fake aircraft, these fake tanks, these fake everythings. Now, another thing we already talked about was the use of these double agents, these three double agents. There are other double agents, of course, but these three double agents were the main ones that were used to pass off false information to the Nazis. Another very important part of the strategy was radio deception. And what I mean by this is radio signals, radio traffic was actually created for these fake army units in the south of England. So the Germans who would be listening into these conversations actually were made to believe that this unit, this army unit was talking with one another, with talking with different people because the, um, the radio traffic was actually very real. So now you have multiple, multiple um, areas going on here where not only would a person say, would a German spy or a German listening in that believe that these army units existed, but also that they were actually talking to one another. So this created this illusion, you might say. Um, another important, uh, factor in this was that these army, this fake, these fake army units had people walking around supposedly working at night. And of course at night, the, um, the lights would be picked up by German reconnaissance aircraft. And so the Germans were once again, led to believe these army units actually existed. So 
competent spy or a competent German commander would look at all this activity going on in the south of England and believe, very well believe that, yes, this is where the actual landings, this is where the actual army divisions were being being staged for these landings. And so if they were close enough to Calais, well, this is clearly enough to... Um, clearly enough to make them believe that the landings would occur in Calais. So after these various activities, the Germans were fooled into believing that these army units and these army units actually existed in the south of England. And as a result, because of the proximity to Calais, this is where the landing would occur. The landing would occur in Calais, not in Normandy. The other operations were going on, meanwhile, in the north of the UK as well, leading the Germans to believe that there was actually going to be a, possibly a landing in Norway. And this was the northern part of this deception that was going on. <clears throat> Once again, um, fictional headquarters were created, in this case, at Edinburgh Castle in Scotland. And false radio traffic, or I should say actual radio traffic, was um, was created to give the illusion <coughs> that, the, um, that um, these army units also existed in the north of England. Um, also, interestingly enough, in the spring of 1944, British commandos attacked the targets in Norway to simulate preparations for an invasion, and they destroyed industrial targets um, such as shipping and power infrastructure in, and military outposts in Norway. Norway had been invaded, by the way, um, by the Germans in 1940 and became part of the Nazi Reich. Um, Sweden remained neutral during World War II as well. But um, to cre help create this deception or help enforce this deception, reinforce this deception, um, there was a lot of activity that was reported in Sweden as well, naval activity. So the Nazis, the Germans, were really caught off guard here. There was an, this intense operation to really make them believe that the landings would occur in Calais through the use of these fictional, mil fictional military units that supposedly existed in the south of England. And they were actually being headed up by a, a general, by a person that the Nazis believed, well, not believed, but um, had a great deal of confidence in as a highly capable commander, and that was General Patton. At the same time, they were also led to believe that the landings might occur in Norway as well. And this created, um, this created a lot of confusion among the Germans when they tried to cipher through all this information. And once again, this was, these operations were, the main operation was Operation Bodyguard, and the operations to deceive the Germans was Operation Fortitude. And this went on through um, uh, the early parts of 1944, leading up to December, leading up to June 6, 1944, when the, when the invasion actually began. Now, it's easy to look back in retrospect and say, well, why is it that the Germans couldn't simply have split their forces and put half in Calais, half in Normandy, or put them all along the French coast? Don't forget, during this time as well, the um, warfare was still, that was very mechanized warfare. It was not as easy to transport troops from one place to another. And so it's not simply like we can do now where we have helicopters, which can land troops very quickly from one place to another. Although obviously there are aircraft that were used during World War II and parachute, uh, paratroopers are obviously used during World War II as well. Moving troops is just not that easy, not as easy as it was now. And... So when the actual invasions began, um, the Germans really were confused. Now, there was another um, way in which the Allies were able to use deception to their advantage, and that was because the Allies had broken the German codes um, early in the war through the use of Ultra. 
Um, there's actually a movie that was made um, by the regarding Alan Turing, the father of modern computing, and his involvement in these operations during World War II, which broke the German codes. And the um, these the, the Allies knew these deceptions were so had worked so well because on June 1st of 1944. Six days before the invasion, there was a decrypted transmission between the um, Japanese ambassador in Germany to his government, in which the ambassador recounted a conversation he had with Adolf Hitler. And um, Hitler had said that he thought the diversionary actions will take place in a number of tactics, a number of places, excuse me, Norway, Denmark, part of Western Western France and France's Mediterranean coast. But um, the Hitler did not exactly know where these invasions would occur, um, which, of course, this is a very high-level source that was giving this information, although unwittingly. And so when the invasions actually began on June 6, 1944, in Normandy, it was a very great success. Um, the Allies were able to take Normandy in a couple hours, although D-Day was one of the bloodiest battles of World War, uh, World War II. About 6,000 Allied troops were lost during that day. But the invasion was a success. The Allies were able to establish a beachhead. And from there, of course, troops, equipment, artillery, tanks started pouring in. And certainly a few days later, that entire area was secure. And weeks later, Paris would fall to the Allies as the invasion moved in. And of course, a year later, Germany would fall um, from the invasion, both from the uh, Allied forces from the West and the Soviet forces from the East. So... To answer my listener's question, yes, this is an example of fraud being used for something good. In this case, the destruction of Nazi Germany. I think we can all agree that was a good thing. The German Empire, German Nazi Empire fell apart and was destroyed. But the one of the biggest factors that made the D-Day invasion so successful was the use of deception. Fraud and deception being used for, in this case, something very good. In this case, the Germans were misled into believing the invasions would occur at a certain point where they were actually would not occur. The Germans could not concentrate their forces, and as a result, the landings were successful. And, um, of course, as I say, the rest is history. Going back to something I said earlier where uh, the Chinese philosopher um, Sun Tzu stated that all warfare is deception, uh, there's certainly no lack of the use of deception and misdirection in warfare. It's a com vital component of warfare, and it has been a vital component of warfare for since the dawn of time. But one thing that's important to remember is that essentially it's the same thing as fraud. In this case, though, we call it deception because it's being used for a, a purpose which is necessary, which is the, in this case, a good purpose to stop the Nazi empire, whereas we call it fraud if it's criminal. But once again, this, in my opinion, anyway, this goes to show that all of human technology, including psychological technology, such as fraud techniques, it depends on how you use them. They can be used for good purposes and bad purposes. And in this case, I think it's safe to say that a fraudster today, if he was working for the British intelligence or American intelligence back in 1944, those same skills that he or she might use to deceive somebody into turning over money is used to destroy an enemy. And I guess history is the judge as to whether that's correct or not. But in this case, certainly as somebody who owes their existence to his parents surviving World War II because of the invasions 
uh, the Allied invasions, I certainly am very grateful. Anyway, that's the end of this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. As I said, it's kind of a different take on fraud and misdirection. It's certainly not white collar crime for this podcast anyway, but it's a little bit different. Like I said, I hope everybody had a good Easter and I will talk to you later. Have a good week. Bye-bye.